Alright, well after today we'll be about a quarter of the way through um, our Old Testament survey. And uh, we've only gotten through, uh, after today we'll be through four books. So we want to do this because this is foundational to um, the rest of the Old Testament. And um, so taking a little bit more time here at the beginning, we'll get to some of the shorter prophetic books and we'll, we'll uh, include several of those in one lesson. So, uh, But this is an um, important foundational section that we want to just spend some time on. So let's, uh, let's consider these things today. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are thankful that um, our hope is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Uh, it is not uh, our hope is not in our works or any deeds which we have done or which we will do, um, because apart from you we are nothing. Apart from you we we cannot reach uh, your presence without receiving your full and final judgment. And so we need Christ to stand in our place, and we're thankful that He has. Um, humbled himself and has been willing to do so, and that he's offered this free salvation to us so that all of us who believe will will receive eternal life. And so we, we are banking on that promise, and we hold that promise dearly, and we pray that uh, this day would be a reflection of our belief in that promise and, uh, and an expression of it. We pray that you would shape us by your word. Speak to us and change us in a way that no human can change us. Um, we need your spirit to change us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, just some history, uh, where we're at, historical context. We're at the base of Mount Sinai. Um, Moses has received the Ten Commandments in Exodus and Leviticus. That's basically where, once you get to Exodus 19 you're moving into the law section, but you're also moving into the section where Moses and the people of Israel station themselves at Mount Sinai, and they're there for um, about a year, about, uh, uh, I should say, for, for several months there. It's about a year after the Exodus takes place. But Moses records a lot of that for us. He takes Exodus 19 through 40, all of Leviticus, and now the beginning of Numbers, really, all of that is at, at Mount Sinai, even though it only covers a couple of months. Well, over the next 40 years, the people are going to wander around in the wilderness, um, and um, so the, be- the book is going to end on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, which is kind of where we're coming to on Sunday mornings. And this book was written by Moses uh, somewhere around 1400 B.C. And as we've seen so far, the, the sin that's come into the world has um, brought much trouble, and yet God has worked a plan of redemption all the way from the time of the curse, from the time of the fall. God is working to restore His people to Himself, but this plan of redemption is a long and tedious one. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes multiple generations for God to carry out His full plan. And so here in Numbers, we take another step forward. Um, God intends to use His people and this land as a way to um, point the people back to the Garden of Eden, His original desire to have his people dwell with that with him on the earth and and also to point forward to the new heavens and the new earth when the best feature of the new heavens and the new earth is that God will be there that God we will live in the presence of God we will live uh, effectively in the most holy place that's what the new Jerusalem really is it's God's presence here on the earth 
And so um, um, what we'll learn today as we just look through this book and are reminded of, of what's going on here is that the same thing that kept uh, the people out of the promised land is the same thing that will keep any of us out of the kingdom of God and the future um, eternal state, and that is unbelief. And um, so the fact is is um, God is willing to to accept anyone who will repent of their sins and believe um, in Jesus Christ and the promised Redeemer. Uh, but He also will let someone, if they want to, just wander around in disobedience and, and enjoy the fruits of their sins. So he, he's, um, God is not going to force us to do anything that we don't want to do. Okay? Obviously, there's, we need to recognize in all that this theological idea of God having to do the work of regeneration and, in a sense, God's initiator. But, but ultimately, when, when Pharaoh uh, you know, raised his fist to God and said, I will not let your people go, it wasn't that God was forcing Pharaoh to do that, right? Pharaoh was doing what he wanted to do. And God somehow has a way to work through the compatibilistic free will of man that allows them, allows them to do the things that they want. And um, so, so what keeps them out is the same thing that will keep us out of God's promises, and that is unbelief. So a quick uh, theme statement, or not so quick, God is still faithful and God still dwells with His people even though they battle with unbelief, distrust, and disobedience as they clash with pagan nations and commit idolatry, resulting in their failure to enter the promised land. So basically, two thematic ideas are placed against one another. One is unbelief, rebellion, disobedience, and that's held up against God's faithfulness, patience, and and His grace. God is, is moving with His people. He's He's long-suffering. He's, he's willing to, to take His time and be patient with His people despite their constant obstinacy. And um, so because of their obstinacy, God's going to allow them to wander around in the wilderness and, and um, experience much of the fruit of their sin, the consequences of their sin. Some immediately, others um, will just die off of old age or other reasons. But the fact is that God has not given up on His people. He has not chosen to annihilate them. He has not um, abandoned them. He, he chooses to stay with them. So the beginning of Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 1, verse 2, is a record of the, uh, the command by God to take a census. God says, take a census of all the people that are, particularly the men who are 20 and older, able to fight um, the military men. And so Moses does that at the beginning. And then at the end, chapter 26, which uh, we'll look at next week in the Sunday morning service, chapter 26, verse 2, is another command that sounds very similar. Uh, the only difference is the list is completely different. Um, the list is a brand new generation. So what's happened between chapter 1 and chapter 26 is that this older generation, the first generation that came out of Egypt, has now become uh, extinct. It doesn't sound right, but, but they've, they've all died off in the wilderness because of their sin. Uh, save Joshua and Caleb. Okay, but then the, the end is another generation. It's kind of like this picture towards hope. Like, like God's not given up on them. There's still a possibility for these people to, to follow Him. And, and Joshua really is a, a continuation of the story and a message of hope, isn't it? 
that, that God, there are some of God's people who are willing to just, just simply obey Him, take Him at His word, despite the kind of bizarre uh, commands that He gives, like the first battle that they come to, um, Jericho, or even before that. First thing that they're supposed to do when they come into the promised land, right? Circumcise all of the men. Put yourself in the most vulnerable position you possibly can be in, in enemy, enemy territory, and just trust me. It's the thing that I want you to do, right? And so they do it. Um, and this is very much unlike the previous generation, isn't it? And so there's, there's much hope in this next generation. So the, the book of Numbers starts out with optimism and hope. The people seem to happily want to follow God. They've, they've sinned at Mount Sinai, right, and at the end of Exodus by um, uh, the, the golden calf. They commit idolatry and uh, adultery, apparently. And um, so God kills a number of the leaders that were involved in that. And, um, and then God is gracious and, and gives the, the law to them. And now they're willing to listen. They're, they're willing to follow God's commands. And that's what Numbers chapters 1 through 10 are all about. We have this, um, um, the people are still at Mount Sinai. And they'd received the law. They're, they're entering into this covenant with God. We call it the Mosaic Covenant where he dwells among them. They're supposed to obey him. And uh, so these are exciting chapters full of anticipation. So chapter 1 is the census. Chapter 2 is the manner in which the various tribes in Israel were to organize themselves. So do you remember how whenever they would come to a place where they would camp, a permanent place where they would camp, the tabernacle would be set up and then all the, the um, first on the inner circle there around or the inner square around the tabernacle was the priests and his family. Um, so you had Aaron and uh, Aaron at the at the opening, at the entrance to the tabernacle, and then you had the other ones around. And then outside of that, you had three tribes that would extend outward, uh, north, south, east, and west. And what it showed, I mean, just looking at it from an aerial view, you see that God is at the center of them, right? He's at the center of them. He is at, he is at the center of who they are as a people and what they ought to be doing. God demands their worship. And then when it's time to move, God, through the glory cloud, gets up and moves and He's the first to kind of lead the way out of camp and the whole camp is following. Just a beautiful picture of God's um, presence in the camp, uh, the importance of worship, and also God's leadership. Turn to chapter 6. And there's this blessing that Aaron and his sons are to bless Israel with. And would someone read chapter 6, verses 22 to 27? So here's this great, confident blessing that God passes on to Moses, to pass on to Aaron, to pass on the people. And it reminds Israel that God is for them. Right? The Lord has lifted up His countenance. He has turned His face towards you, Israel. He, he has His favor towards you. He's not against you. He's pleased with you. 
and um, this is a good and joyous thing for the people. The following chapters further describe the tabernacle, and and then the Passover was celebrated, and and then um, turn to chapter nine. Here we see the the people um, in their travels and how they're moving from one place to the next. Verse 15. Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night, and whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterwards the sons of Israel would then set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. So they knew that God was living among them and they knew that God was leading them. There's no surprises. God's not trying to be secretive about this or um, trying trying to trick them in any way or um, try to get them to be confused or frustrated about where God is. God's very clear that He is with them. And so this is an exciting and hopeful time. At the end of chapter 10, we see them setting out from Sinai and it's a beautiful picture again. Uh, chapter 10, verse 35, it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. When it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriads, the myriad thousands of Israel. So Moses said this when, they, when God would lead them, and he said this when God would arrive in a certain spot. And so all the signs look good. The people are obedient. God is among them. God is guiding them. The people seem to, to be... Uh, to be happy about this. But then, suddenly in chapter 11, the climate changes entirely. The people begin to grumble. They lose faith. This is not the first time, by the way, that they grumble. Remember, three days after um, they crossed the Red Sea, they're complaining about water, right? And so um, so there, there is this constant rebellion. But there seems to be this window of time where God just powerfully comes and, and uh, shows His presence and where he leads them and he sets up the, all these instructions for the tabernacle that the people are in lockstep with him. But but um, but this continuation of faithlessness and rebellion goes on. So let's look at one instance here in chapter 13. And would someone read verses 27 through 29? Yes, please. Yeah, whatever you think. Go ahead. All right, good. Gave you the hard one to read there. Um... So this is the time when the spies are going to the land, and this is really should be an exciting time for the people, right? They, God's saying, "You go into the land. I'm telling you to go in the land and see what I've promised. See if it's true." And what they come back with, two, two recognize the 
the fruit of the land and recognize that our God's too big to fail, so we're, we're going to be fine. But the other ten come back with this negative report and say, these people are way too big. Uh, look at verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. These are the kind of words that we would expect to hear from Israel, that we'd want to hear at least, the words of faith. But um, not everyone was of the persuasion of Joshua and Caleb. Look at verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. They should have included God in that, and then that statement would have made sense, because they're not too strong for them, for them and God. Verse 32, So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone is in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we see the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So you have the words of belief in verse 30, and you have the words of unbelief in verses 31 through, 31, through 33. They, they looked at the inhabitants of the land. They recognized that they were no match for them. They had forgotten the great works that God had done in destroying the most powerful empire in the world at that time, the Egyptians. Um, when I say they forgot, they didn't forget it academically. They just forgot the implications of it for their current um, their current uh, conflict, right? And um, so they, they are weak in faith. They are lacking in faith and no confidence in God and what He could do um, with them. Well, it wasn't only the spies who lacked faith faith um, when they heard the report. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation... So we might think, well, maybe it's just those ten spies and they saw things the wrong way, but notice, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And then notice this, verse 4. This is just amazing. So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. So Moses, you're not going to do it. Aaron's not going to lead us back to Egypt. Someone's got to take us back to Egypt because this is not going to work. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb appeal to the people. Um in verses 7 through 9 and say, listen, you know, who is our God? Do you know our God? Do you know how strong He is? But the people are unconvinced. In verse 10, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And so it becomes clear that their rebellion is not only against Moses and the other leaders, but it's actually against God Himself. And so God now enters into the scene. You know, the people kind of have their say, here's what we think the situation is, here's how we think it should be taken care of, and now it's time for God to speak. And so God comes at the end of verse 10, and then in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. And so God here is ready to start over with Moses' family. And um, so we're a long way off from where we were at the end of chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord have His face to shine upon you 
and and that you would be blessed. And now he's saying, I'm done. I'm ready to be done with these people. But there's still hope. Look at verse 18. Moses says this to to God in his prayer, in his appeal to allow the people not to die, and in, in in the appeal for God to spare them, to be patient with them. Verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Moses had heard God say that before in Exodus. And um, Moses remembered why God delivered them from, from, the, um, from the Egyptians. And what was the reason that God delivered Israel from the Egyptians? Probably multiple answers here, but what do you think? Okay, part of it was that God was going to stay faithful to His promise, right? That I'm going to deliver you from the hand of Pharaoh. Well, any other thoughts? Right. God says, I'm doing this for the sake of my glory. You, Israel, need to see what a glorious God I am. But not only you, the Egyptians need to know how glorious I am. And, in addition to that, all the nations need to know. There's multiple times throughout the book of Exodus that God says, I'm doing this for my glory. And so, notice what what um, Moses appeals to when God says, I'm done with these people. Um, look at verse 15. Uh, in verse 14, he talks about how God leads them. In verse 13, he says, the Egyptians will hear of it. And then verse 15, he says, now if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. Therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. So Moses is concerned about what God is concerned about. He's reminding God about what is most important. It's not that God has forgotten. This is a what I would call a test for Moses that he actually passes. That, that Moses is concerned about what God is concerned about. God is concerned about His glory, about His power being known. He's, he's concerned about His fame spreading. And Moses is saying, what will the news headlines look like if all the nations here that you could not bring your people into... The only reason you brought them out of Egypt was to slaughter them in the wilderness. What will the... That was kind of a long news headline. But, but what will the people think when they find out about, about this report? Right, And it's going to be about you and your weakness, God. And I know that you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. Have you ever prayed in that way? Like Moses does? Appeal to God on the basis of what He desires and on the basis of His promise. Um, reminding Him about who He is. Uh, sometimes we, we kind of just, well, you know, my prayers don't do a whole lot, so I'm just going to... I'm just going to say, bless this person and, and move on. Or, you know, God, have your will. And I think there's, there's something to be said about praying that kind of prayer, right? Your will be done, not my will, but yours. There's certainly that sort of attitude that we have to have. But, but have you ever pleaded with God on the basis of what you believe to be right on the, because of what you know of Scripture? And that's what Moses does here. And uh, we should not be surprised that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? Availeth much. Accomplishes much. It actually works. Right? That's what James says. And that's what happens here. We have a, the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous Moses availing much. And God responds 
So look at verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live on the earth, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So you see what God's concerned about? God's concerned about making sure that all the earth knows about His glory. Okay, so he's, Moses was right. You know, you're, we want the people to know that your power is great. Verse 22, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. So, Moses, you're right. My glory is the most important thing. And I am going to make sure that my glory fills the whole earth. One of the things that's going to detract from my glory is for me to annihilate these people right here and start over with you. So I'm going to take some time. I'm going to let them die for the most part of old age. And then bring up another generation. Jump down to verse 31. Your children, however, when you, whom you said would become a prey... I will bring them in and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the, this wilderness. So, remember the people were concerned that their children were going to die in the wilderness. You know, where they're going to become a prey for the enemies. And God says, you know how you said that they would be the ones who died in the wilderness? You being unable to protect them, uh, they're actually going to be the ones who enter into the promised land. And so... Um, the point is, is that God is still moving forward in His promises. They're not on the timetable that the people would want. Um, in one sense, they're not on the timetable that God would desire, you know, immediately. But God is teaching the people something. He's teaching us something through this story. This generation is going to die. They're never going to see the land. But God's promises are still true. Alright, any questions on that? All right, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. It's on your hand out there on the second page. Hebrews chapter 3. I mean, what difference does it really make if these people um, did not reach the promised land because of their unbelief? I mean, what's, what's the big deal? Well, remember what the promised land represents. The promised land represents God's desire to dwell with His people, to have a close relationship with them, think Garden of Eden, and then think forward to God's desire to dwell with His people, think the new heaven and the new earth. So it's really a, a, a typological picture of what God desires to do with His people. And so um, in the simplest terms, the land um, has to do with um, God's promise of eternal, eternally blessing His people. So let's think about this in terms of of Hebrews chapter 3 because we have a, a sober warning here that a person could be exposed to much power and grace and teaching and and then still tragically fall away from God. Notice Hebrews 3 verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me. 
For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise is, uh, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, for the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So, we have God taking this example of what happened in the wilderness and applying it now to the church. He's saying that example there was for our learning, right? For them, you had all these people who lived in unbelief and as a result, they did not enter into rest. Now for us, rest is not going to come in the form of the promised land, the land of Canaan. We are not Israel. That's not a promise for us. So what God's doing through the author of Hebrews is He's saying that there's a different kind of rest that you are promised. Right? And this rest has to do with this eternal life that comes. The reason we need rest is in the eternal state is because we've been fighting. Right? This whole life as a Christian is a battle. It's a spiritual battle. And so the three parts, the three things that we'll be doing for all of eternity as far as I can tell from the Scriptures is one, rest, two, worship, and three, service. Uh, so so uh, eternity is going to be marked by a time of rest. But there are real possibilities that a person could actually fall away. That having tasted all the great blessings of the Lord, okay, as far as a, an unbeliever can taste, or a professing believer, we could say, right? having tasted all those things coming close to them, they could still fall away. You'll be warned. You can come to church for decades. You can know the Bible inside and out. You can even be a leader in the church. You can be a part of a Bible study, outreach, mission trip, and still miss the rest of heaven. Because it was all never rooted in faith. You never believed. And that's the warning here. I mean, we could say a lot more here, but I encourage you to just think about this passage in terms of what happened to unbelieving Israel. And the key application is we need to have eyes of faith. We need to fix our eyes on what is unchanging. We have to persevere all the way until the end. We cannot let sin and unbelief deceive us and lead us into the shipwreck that comes from those who turn their eyes away from God. We cannot play with fire. We cannot play with unbelief and say, well, you know what? I know I'm not believing now, but you know, I'll get things straightened down down the road. You know, when this happens in my life, that's when I really am going to uh, get serious about spiritual things. We need to believe now. We we don't know what our life is going to be like. It's like a vapor. It's here for a little while, and it vanishes away. And so we need to p- persevere. So, we need to be warned here in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 12, that we need to be warned that there's a real possibility that that we could turn to an unbelieving heart and our, our faith has to last our entire lives. But but do you remember what we read there in verse 13? 
encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that you will not be hardened. So one of the remedies or the antidote to an unbelieving heart is this mutual encouragement that comes through the body of believers. This is why we put so much emphasis, I think the scriptures do, and and we follow the lead there. <clears throat> we put so much emphasis on our church, on church membership, and on um, on church relationships, on building relationships, on praying for one another, on getting to know people better, um, because they're, you know, let's let's just imagine that we're all kind of just disconnected Christians. You know, we're kind of like all in our own islands. Well, how do we know when someone else over here has a deceiving heart? How do they know when we have a deceiving heart? Right? We kind of need to be bumping into each other some way. We need to be, um, we need to be having relationships both in the, you know, in the times around the services best we can through the the activities that we have, and then, and then through uh, obviously outside of the services as well. We are encouraged to. We are exhorted to encourage one another. How often? In verse 13, how often? Day after day, as long as the day is called today. As far as I can tell, every day has been that. So we need to do it every day. Um, and, and the most loving thing that you can do to another believer is to is to just point them to the truth and say, listen, this... This type of sin that right now is being uh, um, exhibited by you uh, does not match up with what a believer looks like in the Scripture, right? And um, those are hard conversations. We don't like to have them, and, and sometimes we just like to pass those off to the pastor, let him do that kind of thing, and, and I'm certainly glad to do that, but, but we each have responsibility, I think, to guard first our own heart, Right, and then and then the heart of the people next to us. I I've used the illustration before of um, when you get on the plane, they um, they wh- whose mask are you supposed to secure first? Right, when in the case of loss of cabin pressure, secure yours first. It sounds really proud, right? Like selfish. Like I'm going to take care of myself, get out of the way, and I'm going to take care of myself first. But but really, you can't help anybody else if you haven't first. You know, help yourself in that way. You haven't checked your own heart. Now, be willing to accept help from others too. That's part of the point. But, but um, you know, perseverance is a community project. It doesn't happen on its own. We we don't just kind of wander off into exclusion and you know into our own little world and just magically reach it to spirit, reach spiritual maturity and spiritual faithfulness. Um, we need each other, and. Um, Praise God that He's given us the church. Any questions on that? All right, we got to move because uh, I want to get to this video here. Um, these chapters in the middle of the book are full of more examples of unbelief and disobedience, and they're full of also God's long suffering and His grace. And so, um, let's just think about this one example that we—I mean, we we looked at it last Sunday morning, so I'm not going to take too much time, but. Numbers chapter 21 because in John 3 Jesus said just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And what He was pointing to is this time when in the wilderness the people had got 
gotten bitten by these venomous snakes that were deadly. And um, so they were... They, the reason that this came about, as I pointed out last week, was that the people had grumbled in verses 4 and 5. You see that there? We have no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And so then God sends the fiery serpents. The people realize what they've done, right? We have sinned against God, verse 7. And so you have this pattern that we also see in the book of Judges, which is you have sin. God sends some kind of um, trial, some difficulty to wake them up to their sin. They respond with repentance. God responds with mercy. That's exactly what happens here. We have the same pattern throughout the book of Judges. You also have this idea, um, really in Judges too, Judges as well, that you have this idea of a mediator has to come along and and be the the go-between between the people and God. And um, and you have the same thing here. In this case, it is um, the redemption comes through the people looking at the snake in verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord said, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, will live. Moses made a bronze serpent, and it came about that if any serpent bit a man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So, again, this is a... Um, typological story it's designed to be fulfilled in the picture of what Christ did that just as the snake was put on the pole and the people had to look at it so Jesus was put up on a pole, a tree um, and the people have to look at him now this looking is not just a, a you know, a quick glance as I mentioned last week it has to do more with a, a, a serious gaze, a reflection on a, a belief in that this is actually going to be my means of deliverance so that everyone who gazed on the snake would live everyone who gazed on the Christ lives and the point of this illustration is that this is God's design there's nothing magical in these things it's it's that God has chosen a way to work and bring about salvation bring about rescue and we just follow his example no matter how silly or crazy it sounds right to an unbeliever they're like this doesn't make sense I have to do, do, do. I have to, I have to, you know, give money. I have to, um, I have to be at church a number of times. I have to do a number of prayers. And God says, no, it's not about that. It's about trusting in me. Those things, you know, will come. Those things are results. Those are fruit. But those things are not the root of, of salvation. All right. Um, Chapters 26 through 36 have the disappointing stories of Israel's rebellion and idolatry in the wilderness. Um, another census is taken, and by the end of the book, you have the people on the brink of entering into the Promised Land. In fact, they actually embrace or, or um, they actually they actually um, dwell in the land on the east side of the Jordan, so that um, the two and a half tribes are are there and, and settled. They're going to help in the battle. Uh, as we'll see at the end of Numbers. but Let me just briefly talk about the Holy Spirit uh, here. I, I've mentioned this in multiple other settings, so I'm going to just go through this quickly. But, but I've given you some passages to just consider. Um, uh, what is this Holy Spirit coming on the people? For example, in chapter 11, verse 16, "...gather for me seventy men from the elders whom you know to be elders of the people." and bring them to the tent of meeting. Verse 17, Then I will come down and speak with them, and I will take the Spirit who is upon you, Moses, and I will put Him upon them, and they will bear the burden of people. 
So the the first thing that we notice is that this spirit is on Moses and somehow the same spirit that's on him is now put on these 70 elders. And then after this, the spirit goes on Joshua. I mentioned there Deuteronomy 34.9. And then the judges. Often, you, know, you can look those up in Judges 3, 10, uh, 3, 6, 11, 15. The spirit comes mightily on Samson, for example. And then at the end, you have King Saul uh, that the Spirit comes on him. But then you have this crazy thing in 1 Samuel 16:14, where the Spirit leaves Saul. You have the Spirit coming on Saul and the Spirit leaving Saul. What's going on there? And then it goes on David in 1 Samuel 16:13. And then when David sins with Bathsheba, the, the Spirit is threatened to leave, right? Because he prays in Psalm 51, a song that we'll sing tonight in our evening service. Um, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Then the Spirit goes on Solomon and then other rulers. And then um, Matthew 3.16 is the record of Jesus being baptized. And what takes place there is that um, as Jesus is being baptized, the Father says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the, the Spirit came from heaven as a dove and rested on Jesus. So uh, the other ruler here that it goes on is Jesus Christ. So this is not a this is not a loss of salvation, right? Um, we know that from other texts of Scripture, John 10, Romans 8, that we cannot lose our salvation. So that's not what this spirit is. Rather, this is, and here's your final two blanks, the theocratic anointing. The theocratic anointing. It's God's giving His special ability to His God-appointed rulers, whether believing or unbelieving. Remember, most of the Israelite kings were not believers. Right, they, they, most of them did evil in the sight of God. They did not follow after their father David. And so, yet the Spirit came on them because they are God's theocratic, God-appointed leader, whether in in Israel or in Judah. Um, and did the Spirit ever leave Jesus? In other words, has there been any, been any other God-appointed king since the time of Jesus? And the answer is no. So technically, Jesus still has that status. But he's going to he's going to show that power that that realization that he is that that leader when we get to the millennial kingdom. He is going to be that God appointed ruler over God's mediatorial kingdom. That's the idea of that. All right. So a lot of um, you'll see that throughout Scripture. So just thought that'd be a good place to to throw that in there for you. Let me get to the video and um, and then we'll if we have time. We'll see if you have any questions. Get 